and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where authors share objects that have inspired their creative process. I'm Katie Brand, and I'm talking down the line today to someone who is no stranger to communicating over very long distances. He's also orbited the Earth 2,720 times and spent six months working aboard the International Space Station. It is, of course, Tim Peake. Tim, welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello, it's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. And actually, I'm glad that we called you on this occasion because I think you've been known to dial the odd wrong number sometimes. <laughs> Once or twice. Yes. Can you tell us about that? It was quite a funny story. Oh, that was funny. I hadn't been up very long, actually. It was uh, Christmas Eve and I decided to give my sister a call mm-hmm. and I got the wrong number. Simple as that. And, <laughs> and some poor lady uh, answered the phone and it sounded a little bit like my sister. So I just said, hello, is that planet Earth? Uh, and of course, she thought I was a prank caller, so hung up on me. Oh, no. What, she hung up straight away? <laughs> well, she just kind of said in a, a, a slightly annoyed voice, no, it is not, and put the phone down. That's uh, hilarious to say, re- no, it isn't. Uh, and so I apologised <laughs> to her on Twitter. Oh, so she made contact or she found you? Or oh, she... subsequently, yes. Yeah, we've been in touch. I've been able to send her a proper apology. Oh, that's great. But she must be delighted, but also slightly frustrated that she just hung up like that. <laughs> a lesson, perhaps, for all of us is to sometimes just take the prank call a little bit further and see because you might see where be it's coming from. talking to someone in orbit. Yeah. Well, as is traditional here on the Penguin Podcast, Tim has chosen a number of objects that have inspired him, including a firelighting flint, a helicopter, a special glove and an object that has actually been in space with him. So we'll find out more about those in a moment. But you've written this new book with the European Space Agency called The Astronaut Selection Test Book. And it's a series of questions to see if readers, if they can sort of make the grade, I suppose. It's a sort of sense that to see, you know, I think everyone's curious. Everyone has this notion. Would I make it? Could I be an astronaut? Do I have the right stuff? Uh, And now you've brought out this book with some actual tests in it that you had to do in order to become an astronaut. Yeah, that's right. So it follows very much the selection process that I did in 2008 and 2009 with over 8,000 other candidates who mm-hmm. applied and, and ended up for six six positions as an astronaut with the European Astronaut Corps. It was an incredible experience to go through myself. I thought it'd be great to actually put it down in a book and demystify the process. What is it that people are looking for, the space agencies in particular, looking for for astronauts today mm. and looking ahead to the future? What will we be looking for in astronauts who are going to go to the moon and to Mars in the next uh, five, ten years? Yeah, I mean, it's all absolutely fascinating, particularly the section at the end about what it'll take to go to Mars and how slightly different sort of selection of skills possibly to to just a sort of space flight or going to the moon. We'll come to that later because I found that part absolutely fascinating. But you say 8,000 people applied and how many of you made the first round? I think uh, the first round was about 918. So it was, a, a you know, a, only 11% yes. success rate for and the then, uh, first round. An even more incredible statistic in the book was that I think you say of all the humans that have ever existed on Earth, only 557 have ever left the Earth. Absolutely. So it's a, a very small minority of people have, have been able to view planet Earth from space, but it's a huge privilege to do so. And the great thing is in the future that it, space is going to become accessible to more and more people. Yeah. And I mean, some people, I mean, they're very wealthy people at this point, but they have put their names down to be able to travel into space at some point in the future. And there are all kinds of people working towards this, aren't there? Elon Musk, Richard Branson, trying to get to the point where people can just go into space and have that experience that you've had. 
That's right, uh, and on a number of different levels. So, as you mentioned, Elon Musk and SpaceX, they they already provide cargo vehicles to the International Space Station. Mm. In fact, I had to capture one during my mission. I've got this sort of weird image now in my head of, of some kind of big net, but I'm sure it can't be like that. How do you capture a cargo pod coming up? So we use the robotic arm on the space station. So some of our cargo vehicles automatically dock to the space station, but many of them don't. They just plant plant themselves about 10 metres underneath the space station, uh, and it's up to the astronauts to use this robotic arm and manually grapple it. Wow, it's just amazing. It is incredible. It's a very high-pressure task, actually, because there's not a huge amount of automation to this. It's, mm. it's pretty old school. You have a couple of cameras, two manual controllers, and you just have to drive this robotic arm in and capture it. Uh, and at, at that point, both the space station and the vehicle are in free drift, so they're essentially just tumbling in space, and it's the astronaut who has to connect the two together with his arm. So a high-pressure moment. God, I mean, as someone who grapples with reversing into a tight space in a multi-storey car park, I can't even imagine <laughs> the kind of skill and spatial awareness that you need to do that. But there's everything in the book. It's engineering, there's physics, principles, spatial awareness, uh, human behaviour, which I found fascinating, linguistics, which particularly as a writer I found really, really interesting. I think one of the skills that you've talked about in the book is that you have to describe things that people can't see which I think brings us neatly, I hope, to your first object, which is a helicopter, I believe. So uh, perhaps you wouldn't mind having a go at describing the Apache helicopter that unfortunately we don't have room for in the studio. <laughs> the Apache helicopter, yes. Um, many people will be familiar with this. It's a helicopter gunship. It's a tandem cockpit. That means one seat behind the other. Quite a large helicopter, but surprisingly agile and manoeuvrable. The British Army introduced these uh, aircraft in about 2000 into service. And really for 10 years, the final 10 years of my military flying career, this aircraft was a very large part of my life. You know, I, I always think of these incredible test pilots and people doing very dangerous missions flying these incredibly powerful aircraft. Are there also times when you feel nervous of making a mistake and, and does that inform the attitude you take into being an astronaut and flying even bigger, more powerful spacecraft? Yes, of course. There are times when you are nervous. There are times when you're testing an aircraft to its limits and you're not sure what the result is going to be. And there are also times when you're on missions that are higher risk. It might be at night time. It might be in bad weather. It seems to me, and I've read other books, I've read Chris Hadfield's book, who I think is also began as a test pilot. And it's not about being kind of immune to fear or any of those sorts of things. It's about, I guess, having the mental strength, is it, to be able to control those natural reactions? I think it is, yes. Uh, and, you know, that's that's a great thing if you've done something in life that's given you plenty of experiences so that you know yourself, you know how you how you tend to react under pressure. I think the problem is when you run out of options, that's when life gets difficult. And training gives you options and knowledge. So the more you know about something, then the more you understand it, yes. then the more options that you have available to how to deal with a difficult situation. And this idea that you sweat the small stuff, which I've heard you and a number of other astronauts talk about is be really obsessed with small things because it could be life or death. That's right, because things will go wrong. I, I don't think a, a single mission to space goes 100% perfect. And the longer we spend up there, then the more opportunity there are for things to go wrong. So the more you know about a situation, the better you'll be able to handle it. Well, I think something went wrong on your mission, didn't it, with the Soyuz that didn't dock? Yes, the, the Soyuz, um, one of the thruster sensor fails, and so it aborted the automatic docking, and Yuri, the Russian commander, he had to fly in manually. Uh, the first attempt was very, very difficult, very 
very poor lighting conditions, the sun was setting, Yuri had to back off and then he brought it back in for a textbook second docking. Thankfully, he's an extremely experienced cosmonaut. He was on his sixth mission to space. So he was a, he was a great guy to fly with. Can you remember how you felt then? Were you just keeping yourself very under control? Do you go into a, a kind of another zone? Or, or can you remember feeling the fear as it happened? It's getting that balance of when to interject and when to keep quiet when somebody else is under extreme pressure and working very, very hard. And we get that by doing plenty of training together. We're tra- trained for hours and hours in the simulators in Star City outside of Moscow, mm. flying the uh, Soyuz spacecraft under emergency scenarios. So knowing your crew members, um, really helps in that respect. But I guess at a certain point you have to trust the technology and the technology is incredible, the hardware, the software and everything. And it's developing all the time, isn't it? As I think your next object will show us. It's a very, very tiny metal pipe. Can you describe it for us and tell us why you've decided to bring that? Now, this piece of pipe uh, in my hand is only about an inch long. But what's interesting is not how long it is, it's how thin it is. It's a a small tube that's thinner, the walls are thinner than a human hair. It's made of extremely strong, light metal alloy. This thing, just to put it into context, it has to cool air from 1,000 degrees Celsius to minus 150 Celsius in a hundredth of a second. That's just extraordinary. It's phenomenal. So this it's a conventional sort of air-breathing engine up to about five and a half times the speed of sound. And then it turns into a rocket engine for uh, obviously getting up to about 25 times the speed of sound to get into orbit. Uh, Absolutely incredible technology. And, and, you know, the human ingenuity and the steps that we have taken over so many years to to get to the stage where we can now be building a machine that's capable of doing this is, is phenomenal. One of your tasks actually up there was monitoring the environmental impact of climate change on the Earth. Yes, from space, uh, I mean, we we don't get to track the long-term changes, but when we look at the photographs of what our colleagues were taking back in the early 2000s of, uh, you know, coastlines, of glaciers, of forests, and then we compare it with the photographs that we're now taking in 2018, it is shocking to see the extent of human impact. And, of course, it's it's very important to the European Space Agency, and we have several satellites dedicated purely to monitoring the environment and climate change in orbit right now. Yeah, and you have a very striking line, I think, about how you wish world leaders could see for themselves what you've seen. On the one hand, it's the most beautiful thing you can possibly imagine. But yes, it does also enable you to really look at humanity from a different perspective. And and you wish that everybody could have that viewpoint, political leaders uh, and anybody just to, to be able to put put life into perspective and i've heard it said about as well as that the you know the possibility of finding life elsewhere in the universe might on the one hand be a terrifying thing we don't know what that might be or what it might entail or result in but the other side of it might be that it would really unite us as a global species and stop us fighting one another and and fighting our environment it may well. And, and one of the fascinating things about our current search for life on other planets, for example, the rovers that we have on Mars right now and the ones that we're, we're planning to send on Mars in our, in our search for life, 
that would be an absolute game changer if we were to find evidence of past life or even um, evidence of present uh, life on Mars. Now, we're talking here microbiological, sort of single cell, maybe bacteria, for example. Um, but the, the consequences of life evolving um, twice in our solar system on two different planets obviously has in incredible implications for the, the possibilities for life elsewhere in the universe. And I think I've read you do believe that there probably is life out there somewhere it's on the balance of statistics. Is that right? Absolutely. I, I think even if, if you say that there are 100 billion stars in our galaxy and only one star in each galaxy will have a planet that has developed life, well, then that still opens up complex life forms in every galaxy mm. in the universe. So, so I, I think that the chances statistically that there is intelligent life elsewhere in the universe are very, very high. I, I had the, the huge privilege to chat to uh, Professor Stephen Hawking about some of these questions whilst on the space station, uh, which is a wonderful uh, time. And uh, we were talking about exactly this. And, and of course, as he said, do we really want to reach out to other complex civilized life forms in the universe? Mm. Will, will they have good intentions for us? And uh, you say you were managing to speak to Stephen Hawking when you were on the ISS, which must have been incredibly exciting for him and you, I imagine. I think people are always fascinated to know, like, what do you just do day to day? I mean, if you're up there for six months, it's effectively your home. Uh, I think I've lived in flats for less time than you've been on the ISS. <laughs> What's your just daily life like up there? We would start at about seven o'clock on a Monday and we work till about seven o'clock in the evenings and the day activities is mainly scientific activities running the experiments. We also have to maintain the space station. It's uh, 20 years old this year. So uh, that requires some effort to keep it running and keep it operational. Uh, we have to keep fit as well. So there, there are daily activities, but science is, is what we're really up there for. That's what it's doing. It's a, it's a microgravity laboratory. The week goes by so quickly when we're working that hard. And the, in the evenings, we're simply preparing for the next day's activities. So when it comes to Saturday, it's nice to be able to drop the tempo a bit. And Saturday morning, we'll have to clean the space station. So out come the wet wipes and the vacuum cleaner, <laughs> keep everything clean and tidy. I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. The Saturday morning... Uh, Absolutely, the Saturday morning clean. Mm -hmm. Saturday afternoons, we tend to do educational programs. So that's where we might do videos for schools or colleges or run voluntary science programs, activities. And Sunday is the really only day where you get any time to yourself, where you can call your friends, call your family, take photographs, play a musical instrument if you want to. Uh, there's a guitar up there, a keyboard, or uh, just simply read a book or enjoy yourself. And how did you relax as a group? There's got to be a camaraderie between you. Do you watch films or read to each other or how does that work? There is a strong camaraderie and actually, you know, uh, we try and get together in the evenings for mealtimes to make that a sociable occasion. Uh, and some people think, gosh, you know, don't you just want time by yourself? You're cooped up in a tiny, tiny environment with five other crew members. But the reality is the space station's quite big. It's about the size of a 747 inside. There's only six of you on board. And most of the day you're working as an individual. Um, occasionally you might have a task that requires two astronauts to work together, but most of the time you're by yourself. So you actually crave your crewmates company in the evening and dinners would always be great we did watch a couple of movies together um what only, did you only, watch? only about two or three times 
we watched the when we first got up there we watched the new Star Wars that had just come up uh, so that was fun Scott Kelly a bit of a busman's holiday or not that was very funny I mean watching Star Wars whilst orbiting the Earth on the International Space Station it just doesn't get better than that I don't know how it is for astronauts but I know for every other um, profession whenever people lawyers watch something on TV or a film about the law or doctors watch things everyone sits there going well that's not that's not very realistic that's not how it happens is it like that for you watching these Uh, things it certainly is for some movies yes yeah but I mean you just watch those tongue in cheek uh, and you uh, you know I do enjoy science fiction movies so I I take the the rough with the smooth but Mm. uh, I mean some movies do a really good job I mean like like The Martian for example I thought did a great job of portraying what life on Mars would be like I just want to return for a moment about the scientific experiments that you did on board and one thing I read which slightly terrified me was that you start fires on the International Space Station is that correct? Uh, yes, we we do uh, in a very controlled manner. I should add, a yes. very controlled manner. So obviously, it's not fire... just a little pile of sticks. Then. <laughs> fire on a space station is is one of the things we don't want getting out of control. But we do want to investigate how flames propagate in microgravity, for example. A couple of reasons for that: we we want to understand in case there is a fire, but also uh, in terms of propulsion and understanding flame propagation uh, in three dimensions. We can actually make our engines back here on Earth much cleaner, much more efficient by understanding um, you know, flame technology by using microgravity. So there's a number of reasons why we, we light fires in space. Which brings us to your next object, which I think you've actually brought along, a fire-lighting flint, which is significant to you on a number of levels. What made you want to bring that? Yeah, so my, my fire lighting flame, when I just look at that, really, that that's my family time. Mm. Um, you know, I, I love the outdoors. I love hiking. I love camping. And uh, I have two young boys. And when we go out in, in Scotland, we're hiking and camping. Then we'll often stop and have a little uh, sausage sizzle by the side of a river. And my challenge to them is to just give them a fire lighting flint and get the fire started, mm. um, which is something, you know, I, I've loved doing when I was a boy in the, in the Cubs and Scouts and then as a, as a cadet. But again, I think I just love the irony of this, that, you know, you're dealing with the most advanced and extraordinary technology that humans have yet to invent. And yet what you really want to do is sit by a river and teach your boys how to light a fire that is sort of 60,000 years old, that kind of skill. Are you aware of that sort of marrying the two extremes of humanity together at the same time? Absolutely. I think, you know, many people will be able to relate to that. We are part of nature. And whilst we're out there with our, you know, our tablets and our social media and electric cars and artificial intelligence and virtual reality, I think anybody who goes outside and goes for a walk in the mountains and and sits by a river will suddenly realise, ah, yes, that's right. You know, this is what makes makes you feel connected. And so I think that's why for me it's it's very important to have both those aspects in my life. A friend of mine uh, from years ago, uh, due to an accident when he was a child, lost his sense of smell. And I once asked him what smell he most missed and he said it was bonfires. And I think I read that you also miss the smell of things when you're in space is that is that sort of visceral smell of fire and earth and things is that, is that something you really crave when you're away 
Yeah, you get sensory deprivation really in space. We, we have artificial lighting 24 hours a day. The temperature rarely changes, the humidity rarely changes, the pressure never changes. And for six months, you end up wishing that, you know, you could have some rain on your face or feel a breeze of fresh air. It's not that the air on the space station is, is dirty or smelly or anything, but you just wish that you could feel some change. And certainly in terms of your smell, um, your nose actually gets a bit blocked because all of the fluid um, that's normally pulls in our legs on Earth without, uh, in, in microgravity, it r rises into our chest and makes this puffy face. And that kind of closes off some of your nasal cavity. So we do actually get stuffy nose and we can't smell very well on the space station. Yeah. Just one other thing that I was very struck by is the description of just the the incredible force of gravity on the Earth and the effect that that has on your body to the point where you can't really walk for a while. Yes, it's not that you're not strong enough because we exercise on board the space station. Our balance isn't great. Your vestibular system is trying to work out what is going on because it's pretty much shut down for six months in space. And, and so coming back to Earth can be really uncomfortable. And you have that sort of sense of being like stuck to the ground almost, like you can't pull away from it. You feel very, very heavy. Uh, and I remember, you know, the first couple of nights sleeping in a bed was extremely uncomfortable when you've spent six months sleeping floating then to feel a bed you know feel the pressure points your whole body acting on those pressure points it's very uncomfortable indeed if you could have a preference would you rather sleep weightless or under the influence of gravity I'd rather sleep weightless. It's really? Br it's brilliant. It's Once you get used to it, it's a wonderful night's sleep. Well, I would love any any company such as IKEA or any other <laughs> to start to develop weightless sleep pods on the basis of your experience. OK, there we go. <laughs> Some sort of ultrasound levitation technique or something. That's it, that's it. Yes, that was on the tip of my tongue, yes. There you go. I should, I should patent that straight you away. Should. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> I look forward to it. Well, let's move on to your next object now. It looks to me like a glove, but I'm assuming there's more to this than just keeping your hands warm. So th this is, you know, a spacesuit glove. Um, uh, yet, and for me, this really is is the uh, epitome of the highlight of my mission to do a spacewalk outside the ISS for several hours. A quite remarkable experience. But the glove itself is something that we had worn many, many times in training. Uh, and what's interesting is that there are 47 different sizes of glove wow. that you can have on your spacesuit. There's only there's only two sizes of boot. It's medium or large, because you don't really need your feet in space on a space walk but your hands are so critical to give you the dexterity and the fidelity to be able to handle tools um, and it's very very hard bending your fingers so you you need to really get a glove that fits well so yeah we've got a choice of 47 sizes <laughs> and what size are you oh, <laughs> i have no idea but oh. i know i know that i know the spacesuit engineers in houston know exactly what size i am yeah you have bespoke space gloves <laughs> um and that's again it sort of strikes me again that the kind of the evolution of humanity that once our hands were very important to us as important as our feet in some ways and then once you're out in space you're relying on everything again you can't just sort of make do or not you know your hands become important again more important than your feet that's right yeah and, and, and again why I, the glove it evokes uh, a strong emotion for me is is you know you spend hours preparing for your spacewalk it's like a six hour choreographed dance if you like of who's doing exactly what at what time where you're going what body position you're going to be in whether you're your safety tether lines are crossing over or not and who's carrying what tools for, to which position. But when you put on your gloves, for me, that's like putting on my helmet in the cockpit of an aircraft. It's like, OK, 
Now no. it's just down to business. Yeah. Being outside the ISS, just with some material between you and the whole of space... I just can't imagine how that would feel. I remember being terrified as a child watching Moonraker, the James Bond film, I think, where someone is out on a kind of life pipe and it gets cut off and he just floats away into space. And then again, more recently, we've had that with George Clooney and Gravity. The vulnerability of just a lone human body in the inky blackness. How did you feel out there doing that? Well, you're right, there's a whole mixture of emotions there. Uh, And, um, you know, you do actually feel fairly safe and secure when you're next to structure, you know, large parts of the space station. But then there are parts of the spacewalk where you have to go. I mean, we were working right at the very furthest edge of the space station, repairing one of the solar panels. And to my right-hand side, there was nothing. I was literally hanging on with one handrail and over my right shoulder was just the rest of the universe. And it's very very, very black, very intimidating. Um, But at the same time, once you embrace it and get used to it, it's actually really incredible. I just hooked myself on with a small tether, let go with both hands and just enjoyed floating there, watching Earth in one direction and the universe in the other direction. Um, God, I just just, felt a sort of rise in my, like a sort of flip in my stomach of both excitement and terror. Well, it's just like that. Tim and I actually uh, had about 10 minutes to enjoy this view before the sun went down and we could actually start work on the on the solar panels it was almost too much time mm. <laughs> because you know it's, it's quite intimidating but a wonderful feeling really incredible again elon musk i saw an interview with him once where he said you know we have to decide are we going to be a single planet species or a multi-planet species but this notion of perhaps setting up a colony on mars even as being the next frontier and you talk about that in the book just let us in a little bit you know, on, on what the realistic prospects are for that. Going on to Mars, you mentioned, you know, eventually colonisation of, of another planet, uh, extending our presence in the solar system. This is inevitable that, uh, you know, humans are going to want to to colonise another planet and to find out more, to be able to live and work in different environments, but all the time improving our technology for the benefit of humanity. And you talk in the book about how it's a slightly different skill set that will be required for going to Mars, that getting there is one thing, but it takes such a long time to get there that people will actually have to live there. Um, And so they're looking for quite a wide variety of people, not necessarily people who are excellent pilots or excellent astronauts. There's going to need to be other skills as well, aren't there, to make a successful colony? That's exactly what we're analysing right now at the European Space Agency. But Mars does definitely add a different psychological aspect to it. It's absolutely um, incredible to think that on a mission to Mars, at some point the Earth will just be a tiny speck of light, just like any other star. Now, that's going to be an incredible thing for humans to witness as they venture out towards another planet. And it will require a certain type of person to be able to deal with that. One interesting quote I read is that people saying, well, but we may need artistic people there to provide another dimension to the environment. If people are going to be there for a long time, they may need entertainment. You know, for me, I wonder, is this my moment? Is there room for a comedian on Mars? That's what I'm asking. (laughs) I think in time, there's a place for everybody. Absolutely. Let's move to your final object, which I think is taking us from something from the universe right down to just sort of something that is more to do with home, uh, something that's actually been in space. What's your final object? Uh, Or the final object here is, is a union flag, which 
which uh, again um, was on my spacesuit. I had two of these in space, so this is uh, an item that was with me for six months up there orbiting the planet. It means an awful lot to me. I'm, uh, you know, hugely proud to be British and uh, hugely proud to represent the UK as a as part of the European Space Agency on board the space station. And you were the first British astronaut to conduct a, a, a long spacewalk. That's right, isn't it? Uh, that's right. Helen Sharman was our first British astronaut, mm-hmm. and she, in 1991, she flew to the Mir space station, mm-hmm. um, and I was the uh, second uh, Brit. As in, when I say this, there's always, you know, you'll get people about talking about how many Brits we've had in space. We've had several British-born, dual nationality, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, but Helen was very much the first British astronaut. I was the first British astronaut to do a spacewalk, right? Uh, and the first um, British astronaut on on the space station. I think actually one thing you mentioned in in the before before we return to the flag, which is fascinating, that that women um, are very much a part of the, the the space story, aren't they? With with um, Helen and also Peggy Whitson, who I think has the record for the most cumulative time in space and the first woman to be in charge of the ISS. Is that right? Absolutely, yes. Peggy was, uh, she flew with uh, my French colleague, Thomas Pesquet, and she's a remarkable woman. Mm. Um, and she holds the US record, yes, for the most cumulative time in space. Um, and, and she's uh, also performed 10 spacewalks, as Amazing. well as being the, the first female commander of the space station. Incredible. Be- because I think people just, you know, it's one of those things, you know, buy a child's costume, buy an astronaut costume, it's going to be a boy on the cover, you know. It, but women are very much a very powerful part of the story, aren't they? There's nothing about a, someone's gender or biological sex that might hold them back from um, applying to be an astronaut. Absolutely. And so to, to such a degree that it, it almost doesn't cross my mind because I, I'm working, you know, alongside uh, wonderful, incredible, uh, incredibly talented female astronauts and mm. engineers and scientists and, and people who are in our mission control unit and our support mm. nexus. Uh, the space sector is is very diverse environment and it doesn't discriminate at all. Uh, and that's what we want to absolutely encourage. And I think the problem is right now is changing people's perceptions from a very early age, trying to get young women interested in STEM subjects so that they have the opportunities in the future when they decide, wow, I'd love to be an astronaut. I don't want them to think, but I wish I'd studied, you know, this at school. You know, I think the idea is to say as as soon as possible, these careers are open to you. So your flag, of which there are two, who has the other one? <laughs> so the the one that I actually wore on my spacesuit, I presented to Her Majesty the Queen uh, <laughs> as a, I thought it was only only right and proper as the first Union flag to be worn in the vacuum of space. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, was she pleased? I believe so. I wonder where it is now. I, I I think it's on display in Buckingham Palace. Actually. Oh wow! So people can go and visit it. Yes. I think you're returning to the International Space Station at some point. Do you do you know when? Well, no. I I hope to. Um, certainly, at the moment, we fly about one European astronaut every year. Currently, Alex Guest is on board from Germany. He's just taken command. Actually, two days ago, mm-hmm. taken command of the space station. Luca Parmitano from Italy. These are all my classmates from 2008. He flies next year. Hopefully, myself and my other colleagues will all get an opportunity for a second mission. And I know you. Might must miss your kids but they must also be incredibly proud of you i guess you win all of the parents coming to school day Oh, I, I, you know, I'm a very normal dad at, at home, and and that's what, how we like to keep life. But but yes, uh, I think occasionally they uh, they do think it's quite cool to have dad as an astronaut. <laughs> well, thank you very much for talking to me. It's a fascinating book. There's a lot of detail in there actually about what it's like to be in space, but also really fun trying to do some of the tests. I can't say I was successful at all of them, so <laughs> I may have to abandon my ambition to become an astronaut. 
Thank you very much for talking to me about your new book, The Astronaut Selection Test Book, Tim Peake. Thank you, Katie. It's been a real pleasure. Also from Penguin Random House Audio, Straight Out of Crawley, the autobiography written and read by Ramesh Ranganathan. When it came to it, though, it quickly became clear that writing a book is no picnic. It's very tricky to ascertain what's worthy of inclusion. Do you tell every story or only the ones you tell down the pub? If someone is a national treasure, every single detail of their life is interesting. If you were reading a book by Stephen Fry, he'd say something like, well, you can imagine the confusion when I sat down to drink the tea and they'd actually given me coffee. From the delights of Sri Lankan hospitality, to his struggles as a child, teacher and now parent, to his adolescent flirtation with a rap career and his attempts to finally make it in comedy, Straight Outta Crawley is Ranganathan's hilarious and irreverent autobiography. The audiobook is available to download now.